I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 8th, 2016. A day that, as this show attests, is not all about politics. Coming up, we'll hear about how we can trick our mind into healing ourselves. It's called the placebo effect. From science journalist Eric Vance, whose new book, called Suggestible You, explores this medical phenomenon. We begin with a look at some of the recent news and calendar events in science. Despite the absence of any real discussion about climate change during this presidential race, race and the fact that climate change denier is one of the candidates, climate change is front and center on the world stage this week. Yesterday, the global climate talks began in Marrakesh, Morocco. Diplomats from 196 nations are meeting to firm up a plan to save the planet. There will be plenty of heated debate, all right, but the debate is about how to solve the problem of a warming planet and who should pay the most to fix it, not about whether climate change is real. The diplomats in Marrakesh are riding positive momentum from the landmark Paris Agreement, signed last November, to battle climate change. The plan became international law, in fact, last Friday, a record time for an international treaty. As President Obama told TV talk show host Bill Maher last Friday, All the progress we've made on climate change, including the Paris Pact, is going to be on the ballot. The talks will continue until November 18th, so stay tuned. How on Earth keeps you up to date on recent news and events in science, but we rarely tell you about how the news becomes, well, newsworthy. An article in the journal Science last week explores this topic. One way of measuring the scientific impact of research by a particular scientist is to measure the number of citations to each of their peer-reviewed papers. Based on a statistical analysis, a team of researchers have demonstrated that variables for randomness, productivity, and research quality can predict future citations for new papers by a particular scientist. This combination of variables remains constant throughout a scientist's career. But it's the research quality that separates exceptional scientists from the crowd. There was also a surprising result. Most people would expect that as a scientist matures in their field, Each of their published papers would, over time, receive more citations. In fact, when accounting for productivity, the researchers found that a scientist's paper with the greatest impact occurs randomly during his or her career. Here's the rub. To accurately calculate research quality, the team needed at least 20 publications with 10 years of citation history. So if you're a longtime scientist with a lot of publications, you're more likely to have high-impact papers. And if you're an early career scientist, It's just too early to know what kind of impact your career will have. And on the science calendar, however far ahead of the national curve Colorado has been in legalizing recreational marijuana, there's always more to learn about the science of cannabis. Toward this end, Café Scientifique Boulder will meet next Tuesday night, November 15th, for a talk called The High Life in Colorado, Clearing the Smoke to Reveal the Science of Cannabis Analysis. A team from Global Analytical, the first state-approved cannabis testing lab in Colorado, will give the informal talk. The event will be held at West Flanders Brewing. That's at 1125 Pearl Street in Boulder. The talk starts at 6 o'clock, but hors d'oeuvres will be served at 5.30. For more info, search Café Scientifique Boulder. Also on the science calendar this week, 
tomorrow night, November 9th, let yourself detox from the elections over a blending of science and storytelling. Storyteller Odds Bodkin and naturalist Martin Ogle will delve into big-picture questions about our human journey on Earth in a multimedia presentation called Story Earth. How on Earth team member Kendra Kruger will emcee the event. It'll be held at 7 p.m. at the University of Colorado Boulder's Sustainability, Environment, and Energy Complex at 4001 Discovery Drive. For more info, go to www.parentengagementnetwork.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So if I were a white-coated physician and I told you that drinking two cups of black coffee with a splash of cayenne every day would cure you of chronic joint pain, would you believe me? How about if 10 of your friends, and say 20 of their friends, also claim that the caffeine remedy cured them of pain in various joints? Would you be more likely to believe them? Well, according to research, you might be more likely to be cured by the remedy if your peers said they'd been cured than if you just tried it without knowing its effect on others. Scientists are learning more about how expectations and beliefs influence how our bodies, including our neurochemistry, respond to pain and disease. Indeed, we are very suggestible creatures. But we're not equally suggestible. For instance, some of us can cure our ailments by taking a placebo remedy, but the same placebo doesn't work on others. So why is this? Herein lies a major puzzle that has vexed drug manufacturers and medical practitioners alike. And it's an enigma that Eric Vance, a science journalist, has been exploring basically since he was a toddler. His journey is detailed in a new book just published today. It's not just Election Day. And the book is called Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to Deceive, Transform, and Heal. Mr. Vance joins us via telephone from his home in Mexico City. He's climbed the wall. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah. You got ahead of us all in Mexico City. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the weather's great down here if anyone else wants to come down. (laughs) All right, then. Well, I want to start with you. That is suggestible you, Eric Vance. So it seems like the seeds for this journey that became the book began when you were, well, maybe not born, but as a young toddler and nearly died. Talk about what what happened there. Well, I was raised in... uh, in Christian Science, uh, which uh, most people know is, is, is a, it's an American religion that goes back to the 1800s, that um, and its practitioners don't tend to go to doctors. Um, and so I, I actually didn't go to a doctor until I was 18 years old. The first time I went to a doctor. Think of all the money uh, you saved. Think of all the money I saved. <laughs> that's that's actually one way to look at it. I yeah. Suppose. Not not the one that people jump to. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, growing up, it was, uh, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't a strange thing. You know, people, occasionally people would say, oh, you don't go to doctors. You know, what happens if you break your arm? But it was sort of just, it was just taken as, as a given. Um, and uh, one of the, uh, one of the sort of the most powerful, you know, uh, stories that, 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 that I would think about as a scientist was a story that actually happened to me before I, I could even remember, before I, I you know, uh, something happened, you know, when I was a baby. Um, and I had a, a, a disease that uh, it's hard, hard to tell exactly what it was. My parents at the time thought it was Legionnaire's disease. Uh, it could have been a number of different things. But, uh, and that's I was a not kind well of pneumonia, enough. right? This bacterial pneumonia? 
It is. It is characterized by a, a cough, and, and in my case, I, I was turning colors and uh, eyes rolling back in the head. I, I was not in good shape. Whatever was going on, I was certainly in a, in a very serious condition. And uh, and my parents um, were on. <laughs> may seem strange to listeners. They, they were sort of on the verge of calling, uh, going to the hospital, which for a Christmas scientist, you know, can be a very big a big deal. Um, and uh, and I experienced what. Christian science would call it instantaneous healing. And um, uh, what exactly happened that day, you know, it's kind of been a, a, a subject of some fascination. You know, for many, many years as a kid, it, it was sort of why I knew that, you know, I had this you know, incredible power sort of inside me, you know, the, along the lines of the, the religion. Um, and then as I got older and I left the religion, I, you know, I was left with this question of not just that experience, which I obviously can't remember, uh, but all the experiences that came after that were sort of fueled by that knowledge and by that confidence. Uh, what had happened to me? How, how did I, you know, how did I stay healthy? How did I <clears throat> and, and other members of my community heal themselves? And, and it sort of became, uh, as, I beca- as I moved into science and then finally science writing, it became sort of a, a quest for me to to figure out what exactly was it that I was seeing as a kid. You know, Christian scientists and anyone who does faith healing, they're not crazy. They're, they're experiencing something. It's just not clear what it is. And that, and that really led to this book, um, trying to understand, um, not necessarily trying to justify, um, but trying to understand what's happening when people experience not just Christian science healings, but all kinds of healings, um, including homeopathy and um, acupuncture and, uh, and, and laboratory. So before, before we get you know. to um, some of these practices and the quest itself, I want to take, take us actually to that bedside. You said you were suddenly healed. I know you say in the book that your mom went to a healer and she was mm-hmm. about to go to a doctor. How did you actually mm-hmm. suddenly feel better? <laughs> well, uh, it's you know it's it's become sort of family lore, and uh, as, as the story goes, uh, you know I was they were I was passing, uh, you know I was maybe one and a half years old, and I was uh, passing away in sort of in front of their eyes, and uh, as they were going to take you know a, a last minute panic trip to the hospital, just before they did, my mom went and called a, a healer, or they called a practitioner, and uh, and said if, if this if this religion is going to work, it, it needs to work now. And uh, and what happened, uh, without getting into too many details, um, you know, the, the healer calmed my mom down and, and, and talked about uh, about the religion and and, and God's pow- healing uh, power. And once she got calm and once she she achieved a level of confidence in in in, in uh, that everything was going to be okay, when she walked back in the room, I, I had been healed. And uh, I did spend the next couple of days passing out occasionally, um, and then, which I never, again, I've tried to go back and reconstruct what exactly happened to me. Uh, but, you know, it, it was one of those stories that uh, almost defies belief, you know, that, that immediately, once she got calm, uh, the disease sort of just disappeared. And that, it seems, led you, I mean, in the course of your being a science writer anyway, but to explore this issue about how our expectations and beliefs do influence how our bodies and our neurochemistry respond to pain and disease. Mm-hmm. So how, how does this work, and how do we know it's true? Well, it's, 
um, uh, it has to do, it all ties back to something called expectation. This is a very hot and interesting topic in psychology. Um, and this is basically, your brain is a prediction machine. Uh, and that, that's not me saying that. That's uh, a number of um, leading philosophers and, and uh, uh, brain scientists have sort of found that the easiest way to describe your brain is a prediction machine. All day long, we're predicting different things. You, know, you drop up your keys and you predict they'll hit the ground. You know, you... Um, Everything we do, all our day brains long. are a little extra active today on that front, perhaps. Oh God, yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, and, and that's basically what they do. And they could be big predictions, they could be small predictions. Um, they, you know, but basically, we're using the past to try and guess what's going to happen in the future, so that we can adjust our our behavior. And that, that's that. And that is very basic. That's what a prediction. That's what a brain is doing. And what a placebo uh, does is essentially changes what happens uh, away from the predictions. So your, your brain predicts one thing and something else happens. And your brain has this funny quirk where it, it doesn't want to be wrong. So mm. up to a certain point, it will, it will fill in the gaps. It will uh, twist reality in order to make its prediction correct. So when you're taking that placebo pill, your brain if it has made a strong prediction that it will, relieve, that it will make you feel less pain, and there's nothing in the pill that will do that, your brain will step in and actually release um, morphine-like drugs that will lessen the pain so that your expectation meets reality. It, it's, it's like a stubborn, it's like, it, you know, your brain's being stubborn about not being wrong. And that's essentially what's at the heart of the placebos that I was interested in. And first, just a little primer on placebo itself. Didn't it used to be a sugar pill, and now it's, I mean, it's inert. But w what are often the ingredients of a placebo pill? Well, a pl that's a placebo pill. A placebo can um, be anything, um, anything uh, inert that, um, that, uh, um, that, af that affects some sort of healing, some sort of that, that makes someone better uh, without uh, without having active ingredients. So that could that could even be a placebo surgery, what they call a sham surgery, where uh, you say you're going to give someone surgery, you you knock them out, and then you make an incision, but then you don't do anything else. That that's a placebo in its own way. Uh, it can be a, a saline injection, uh, which is a salt water injection, which doesn't do anything. But yeah, there are pills, and the pills are actually the whole debate over what the placebo pill should be made of. Uh, they did used to be made of sugar. Um, now they're often either corn material or sometimes rice material. There's a lot of different things um, that may or may not be placebos, and they, they, get, they get more complicated. But yeah, essentially the idea is that they are inert, and that it is only your expectation that is, um, that is the active ingredient. And it's something that drug companies obviously have taken very seriously in modern history. In fact, they're, I mean, they're sort of the cornerstone of clinical trials, right? Talk about how, how mm -hmm. that is. Well, um, it, uh, it used to be that, that uh, all drug companies had to do was prove that a drug was uh, safe, uh, and, uh, and, and that was enough to get it, you know, um, um, allowed by the government. And um, in the 1950s, there was a move, uh, there, there was an understanding that, uh, that, um, that they should not only be safe, but also effective. And how do, you say, how do you determine if they're effective? Well, they have to be more effective than an inert pill. That, that was what scientists came up with. Up until then, placebos had sort of been a, placebo pills had been sort of a, sort of a, a curiosity. Some scientists had used them as sort of a way to, to test different things and to, to draw conclusions, but not as like a, 
as a as a you know as a diagnostic tool to see if something worked, and, that, and that's really was a, that was a huge change, and really ushered in what we call you know modern medicine. Um, and you're really and, talking what, in, right post World War II. Yes, we're talking uh, 1950s. There was actually uh, it was <laughs> it was right after um, uh, a, a, a rather catastrophic. Um, uh, uh, um, Pain, uh, sort of morning sickness pill, um, caused a, 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 a number of birth defects in Europe. Right. That uh, that um, the American government decided that, that to avoid that, which this didn't actually even address that question, but as sort of a, 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 a panicked moment, they, they adopted this bill that said, okay, everything must be compared against the placebo effect to make sure it works. And uh, and that was in, I think nineteen gosh nineteen sixty two I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, but this this had been a conversation going on throughout the fifties after the. The World World War Two, when uh, a couple of scientists, sort of uh, uh, Henry Beecher, sort of came out and sort of uh, introduced the placebo to the world. And since then, uh, actually, they had to get rid of a thousand drugs. There were a thousand drugs that were on the market then that, after this this bill went through, they they realized um, were not effective against the placebo. In fact, were placebos themselves. Um, and, and thousand you can imagine drugs. That, wow. A thousand different drugs that had been on the market. Everyone was using them. And then once they compared them against the placebo, they realized these things hadn't actually worked in the first place, which, which is a, just a, an indication of how powerful the placebo effect can be, that, that there were a thousand drugs that no one knew were not actually uh, effective. So this was born essentially the modern clinical trials that are randomized, mm-hmm. double-blind, and placebo-controlled, right? And why... I mean, it seems that this is not a topic, and you allude to this in the book, that drug companies want to tell us much about, even though it's integral to uh, the trial and testing and and whole marketing. Not marketing, but development of drugs. You're absolutely right. Uh, Up until now, up until recently, uh, pharmaceutical companies have been mostly focused on how to limit the placebo effect. And, and, you know, this this isn't necessarily... Um, a bad thing. It, 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 the placebo effect can really muddy the waters and make it very hard to tell. If you have a placebo effect of, you know, it, it, the companies I've talked to have complained about, you know, a placebo effect of 40%, but I've certainly seen uh, studies where it can be 50, 60, even 70%. Now imagine Meaning, 70%. meaning up to 70% of those in the placebo category the placebo of the trial got better. Feel better. So if you have 70%, of, of your placebo arm feeling better on a you know on, on basically an inert substance, how on earth can you prove if your drug works? It's a very high bar to get over. You know it has to be better than that. So it it it's very in some cases in, in certain conditions of pain, depression, Parkinson's disease, irritable mm-hmm. bowel syndrome. This this number is really really high, and it, and it becomes almost um, impossible to get over. So. The pharmaceutical companies for, for many, many years have, tried to, have been trying to figure out how to limit the placebo effect, so, both so they can sell their drugs and also so that they can figure out if they're worth pursuing. And, and that's one of the, those are you know, two very big questions. And you know, if you have a drug that looks good at first and then you have a 70% placebo response, well, how are you going to know? No kidding. And so I'm really curious, how do they know? Like, why is it that... Certain conditions, you just mentioned pain, depression, irritable bowel syndrome, and even Parkinson's disease, have a much higher placebo rate. They, they respond much more to a placebo than other ailments. Well, you, you see it. I mean, you know, a lot of this data is um, 
you know, at least on, on the on farms and pharmaceutical companies, is, is, you know, isn't isn't available to the public. But you see them in smaller trials that that are that are published. You know, where that where you do can see the data, um, and uh, certainly in in um, you know in university studies that are they're looking at these questions, you see these numbers. You, you know, I've I've seen placebo numbers in very small studies that are basically a hundred percent, which you know you know in a small group of people, everyone responds to the placebo, so. It's, it's basically a failed, you know, study. And the only way you can really tease out what's really happening is having massive numbers of people and getting statistics to sort of balance out. But without that, I mean, you know, if you just get the wrong group of people, you end up with, you know, so you can, you can end up with these very high responses. Now, you look at something like um, obsessive-compulsive disorder or uh, Alzheimer's, and then placebo response responses are very, very low. Which tells us that there are rules. There's something going on in the brain. This is not some sort of, you know, fluffy psychological phenomenon. That there are there is something going on that separates one disease from another disease. And and when there are rules, the, the, then that means we can figure them out. So they and don't that, know exactly sort of what, what it is that separates them. They just know there there are these distinctions between, say, those who have some kind of pain, depression, irritable bowel syndrome, versus those who have uh, OCD or Alzheimer's. In terms of how they responded placebo. Well, until recently, that was the case. Over the last, boy, um, uh, we'll say a couple decades, um, I mean, it's really been this evolving science where we have been able to understand the mechanisms at work. Uh, at work. Uh, and uh, I mentioned um, that morphine-like chemicals are called, uh, um, they're called uh, endogenous opioids. Uh, but there's also dopamine. Now, dopamine is, is, does a lot of things in your, in your body. It's like It's like kind of the... The, the jack of all trades, um, you know, it has his fingers in all the pots, but one of those pots is, um, is rewards. And so, um, you know, what is a placebo response if not, if not expectation of reward? And mm. so pl- dopamine plays a big role in that, and it also seems to attach to many other parts of bodily function. Now, who's more important, you know, the endogenous opioids or the dopamine or serotonin or endocannabinoids? Endocannabinoids we might recognize from uh, marijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all of these things sort of working together, which one's more important? Those are the questions we haven't figured out, but we are starting to, den- to identify the chemicals at work when someone's just having a placebo response. And you, you take us um, on a lot of journeys in the book. One of them is to China, to one of the mm-hmm. sort of leading traditional Chinese medicine practitioners who says, yeah, it's basically a religion that it's not evidence-based mm-hmm. in the Western sense. But so I guess my question is what separates, or is that placebo effect working, and what separates that from snake oil? Well, it's a great, it's a great question. I think it's something that um, our society struggles with, and I struggled with in, in writing this book. Uh, you know, I should say not all... Um, Chinese medicine is necessarily placebo. You look at something like art of medicine, which is a you know an important malarial treatment. Uh, just you know, there's a Nobel Prize just awarded you know related to this. Um, it, you know, there are the problem is is a there's there's no systematic technique to separate uh, in Chinese medicine um, something that that is more powerful than a placebo versus not. In fact, there's not really any systematic way to even. Um, to disqualify any ingredients. So, you know, certain practitioners still use mercury in their treatments. Uh, and, and there's no way to say, well, mercury is now off limits. So that's, 
that's one of the problems that I ran into. And, and when you talk about that, you know, when you talk about um, Chinese medicine, you, you know, the, this, 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 uh, this uh, professor who was, who was very kind to speak with me for a, a long time, um, you know, she said, look, you know, in, you know, in Western medicine, you're moving like along a straight path. But in, um, in Chinese medicine, you're, 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 there's a central point, a central truth, and, you know, and you're moving in a circle around it. And I pointed out that you know, isn't that basically religion? You know, be it the Bible or the teaching of the Buddha or whoever, it's a central point that you, know, you move around. And she said, "Well, yes." And then, uh, and then she said, "Well, wait, no." <laughs> but uh, but this is this is the thing, and this is the heart of belief. Now, whether we're talking about Chinese medicine or Christian Science or any belief-driven um, changes to the body, I, the processes tend to start looking very similar. Um, the the, the and even in China, you know, when I talked to people on the street, they, they told me, you know, well, for certain conditions, we will go to a traditional healer. And for other conditions, we'll go to a Western doctor. And, and those conditions looked a lot like the conditions that respond to placebos. Fascinating. Um, so, you know, and, sorry, we just have um, one more minute. Sure. I want to ask you also, so what is your hope or vision for medicine? Because you want to see more of this mind-body connection studied and, and practiced? Well, here's the thing. We're already doing it. You know, I mean, we, we already take placebos. You know, people say oh, we should be you know, prescribing them. Seventy percent of doctors say they do this on occasion. Uh, and, and we certainly take, you know, sort of supplements that are very you know, essentially placebos. This is something we need to do more of. This is something we need to understand. We already do it. And I think there's two things. First of all, uh, you know, as, as doctors, we need to understand that these are powerful, powerful um, parts of our treatments and that you can't throw away, you know, there, there's a placebo effect on top of the medicine that you're giving. And, 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 it, and it's, you know, it's, it's a kind word. It's a hand on the shoulder. It's, you know, it's taking the time with a patient and, and, and to create those placebo effects. And that's really important. And as a patient, we have to realize that placebos have limits and what the rules are and, and that you shouldn't take placebos when you're fighting cancer or, um, you, and you have a life-threatening disease. Uh, if there's something, that, and I think we all know when maybe we're, we're taking something that's maybe potentially a placebo. I mean, I do it all the time. Uh, and we just have to be aware of ourselves and know that there are certain things where that might be appropriate and other things that it's not. And so on the one hand, doctors need to give it m more confidence, and, uh, and maybe patients need to be a little more critical about what they're taking. Well, thank you. And I know there's so much more in this book about the nocebo effect, what can actually make you worse, and uh, all, all sorts of things about false memory, recollection, and such. But thank you so much. Maybe we'll uh, continue at another time. Thanks for coming on the show, Eric. I'd love to. Thank you very much for having me. That was Eric Vance, a science journalist and author of the just-published book, Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to Deceive, Transform, and Heal. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran, and it was engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Jefferson Airplane. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. 
For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto. And I'm Susan Moran.